we live in troubling times. Very troubling times, in fact. Since the Garden of Eden, God's creation has lived in troubling times. Though I think every generation comes to a point where it reflects and concludes that these are troubling times. Many of you today spanned various generations here gathered. Perhaps you can remember a time in your life decades ago when you would have said, wow, we live in troubling times. In fact, God's people have always lived in these troubling times. Though they are unique in our experience, they are not different. God's people have always, since sin entered the world, lived in times of difficulty, times of trial, times of sorrow and sadness. And the Bible says that we will continue to live in troubling times until the Lord Jesus returns. And so what are we to do? Are we to merely give up? Go home? Hide out? And the world is perverse? There's lots of problems? Perhaps you can't even stomach to watch the media or television or, or even hear the discourse in the public square without just being so frustrated and so discouraged that you just, just want to turn it all off, close the door, and wait for Jesus. Friends, that's not what Jesus would have us do. He wouldn't have us hide out in the church, close the doors, close our hearts and lives off from the world around us just because we live in troubling times. You see, the problem with that kind of attitude and that approach is the problem isn't so much out there as it is in here. You see, if we were to kind of all gather in here and cut ourselves out from the world, the problem of sin would remain. The problem of unrighteousness would continue. You see, the problem isn't just out there. It's in here. The problem is our own hearts. Yes, these times are difficult. Trials abound. Difficulty abounds. Brothers and sisters, as Christians, the trajectory is not in our favor. The road we are on as a, as a human race is, is not good. It, the Bible tells us that then in the last days, things will not get better, get far worse. So are we just to become half glass full kind of people? Are we to become discouraged to give up and go home? How are we to live in these troubling times? Friends, that's what we want to think about this morning. We want to think about how you and I as God's people are to, to live in troubling times until the Lord returns. And for that, we want to consider yet again 1 Samuel chapter 26. I hope you've been encouraged by this letter or this book, this story. 
story now that we've been in for several weeks considering the life of David. David, we are told, has taken up residence in the wilderness of Judah. His life reflects that of Israelites' future exile. Uh, David has been exiled from his people. He's living a life on the run. He's a fugitive. He is living on the run from a crazed, insane king who will stop at nothing to see David dead. He is isolated from his homeland, unable to worship the Lord before his presence. He's been told to leave town, to find another religion, and to forget that he was ever an Israelite. Imagine the pain and sorrow that David endured, being told to to leave. We don't need you, David. We don't need you around. Well, why? Why has he endured? Is it something that David had done? Did David deserve this treatment? Did David deserve to be cast out as an exile, as a criminal, because of some sin that he had committed? Some action that he had taken? No, none of these. Why? Because God was teaching him. David was in leadership boot camp. For David to be the king that God needed him and his people to be, David had to endure some of the hardest days, days that would not compare to any of our days, so that he could write Psalm 23, the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Have you taken comfort from that psalm? Have you taken comfort from that psalm penned not by a man who lived in some ivory tower, but who was abandoned by his people and lived as as an outcast? David had to experience these things so that he could give us his God's word. So that he could teach us how to follow God, not when the sun is shining brightly, but when it seems as if the darkness will never end. That's where David is at. So I invite you to turn to 1 Samuel 26, page 249. So 1 Samuel, excuse me, 1 Samuel 26. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hekilah, which is on the east of Yeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hekilah, which is beside the road of the east of Yeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul had come after him in the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Then David said to Himelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother Abishai the son of Zariah, Who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? 
And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any, any awake. For they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on the hill, on top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner the son of Ner, saying, Will you answer me, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man? Who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the lord lives, you deserve to die, because you have not kept watch over your lord, the lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Jonathan said, or excuse me, and David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Why does my lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore, let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may God accept an offering. But if it is men, May they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go, serve other gods. Now, therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord, for the king of Israel has come up to seek a single flea, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David. For I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many great things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. How are we to live in these troubling times? Friends, God's people have always and will always live in troubling times. Trials come from the Lord to teach us to trust the Lord for a greater reward. This passage this morning offers us two truths for troubling times. Two truths for troubling times. First, to remind us that trials are from the Lord. 
but we'll see that in the story. But if you want to notate, verses 12, verse 23. Trials are from the Lord. Secondly, to teach us to trust the Lord for a greater reward. Trials teach us to trust the Lord for a greater reward. And we saw that in David's speech there in verse 23 and 24. Well, first, let's consider the first truth. Trials are from the Lord. We are told in verses 1 through 5 of David's relentless enemy. Saul has been relentless in his pursuit of King David. He will stop at nothing to see David dead. These verses here offer us really the context of the conversation. I pointed this out a few weeks ago and just want to point it out again. In 1 Samuel, often what happens is we are told, the narrator tells us what happens, and then there's some commentary from the speakers, in our case, David and Saul, that offer as a kind of commentary on the events that have just taken place. Then, from a sort of theological perspective, uh, David writes a psalm to give us sort of a a big theological perspective, a God-sized perspective of what's going on in the situation. David's responses and Saul's responses are man's perspective in, in in the context. And then David's reflection in Psalm 54, that psalm we read together earlier, offers a sort of theological God perspective on the events that have occurred. Well, we were told in the text that the Ziphites have once again revealed David's hiding place. This happened to David back in chapter 24. You might remember back a few weeks ago, this very same thing happened. This has led many liberal scholars to conclude that these stories are made, made up. They're fictitious because, well, the same thing can't happen to the same guy twice, right? Well, that logic, as you'll see, is, is quite faulty. The events themselves, while the revealing of David's location is the same, the events themselves are very different. One, David is hiding in a cave. Here, David is hiding in the wilderness. Uh, One, David cuts off the corner of Saul's robe. The other, David takes a spear from Saul as he sleeps. Clearly, by just reading the text, you can see that they are very different. But nonetheless, David is exposed in the same way, thus heightening the pain David must have felt. These were his family members. These were his cousins. I know some of us don't get along with our cousins very well, but, but, but these were his cousins. These were, these were his kinsmen. These were his family members who keep exposing him and keep revealing his hiding place. Saul, we are told, has again re-engaged Though he had promised in chapter 24, I'm done, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. We can see again, Saul's repentance isn't true repentance. And I'll comment on that in just a moment. Being sorry is not true repentance. Continuing to do the same things over and over and just being sorry for them is not repentance. Repentance is stopping. So Saul's repentance is not genuine. We are told that Saul, yet again, just as he does in chapter 24, comes at David with 3,000 men. As you'll be reminded, David only has 600 men, 600 of the sort of, uh, not the cream of the crop, 
the, the rejects, the ones that couldn't make the team, the ones that weren't enlisted in the elite army of Abner. These are the ones who have come to David. David is yet again outnumbered, five to one, 3,000 against 6,000. And notice here, David, however, does not remain hidden. This time David acts. In the cave, he remained hidden. He kind of held back. But here we are told, look, look with me in the text. Notice what he does. Verse 4, David sends out spies and learns that Saul's indeed come. And then David goes yet further. David draws himself closer to the enemy rather than fleeing from the enemy. David doesn't run from the trial. He runs into the trial. David doesn't flee. David runs and he comes and he, and he looks. Yet Saul is relentless in his pursuit. Relentless. David's enemy is relentless. He will not give up until David is dead. And, and this text reminds us of the kind of trials that you and I are often in. The Bible tells us that that we are to be sober-minded and watchful because the devil prowls around looking for someone to, de to devour. Brothers and sisters, you have a relentless enemy in Satan. He does not take the day off. He does not take a vacation. The enemy is relentless. He will stop at nothing to see you destroyed. This is why Paul says that we are to put on the whole armor of God. That we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Brothers and sisters, I want to be clear. No, the devil himself is not omnipresent. So let's get something very clear right now. The devil is not omnipresent. What that means is the devil is not in a bunch of places at one time. So I'm pretty sure the devil isn't bothered with me today. But he is scheming with the structures in the world, in the evil in the world, he's scheming with all of his little minions running around. He is scheming to see you and I destroyed. He is relentless in his attacks. He will come again and again and again. But, brothers and sisters, we also trust that these trials are from the Lord. That, that Satan is not omnipresent. And Satan is not sovereign. The Bible tells us that, that he is not in control, but King Jesus is in control. And though we have a relentless enemy, we trust that God is sovereign over our lives. Well, notice with me next, verses 6 through 8, a reoccurring opportunity. In verses 6 through 8, we are told that David makes plans to go into the camp. Under the cover of darkness, while everyone is asleep, David is going to kind of check things out a little bit. Let's do a, a, a pre-assessment, a, a pre-war assessment of where everyone is. He sneaks into the camps and into the sleeping quarters of Saul. The text doesn't make clear whether or not Saul is in a tent or not, but seems to imply the fact that he's not just laying out under the stars, but is in a tent where the army is surrounded. He is going in the midst of the lion's den, if you will. If one troop wakes up, the alarms will be sounded, the horn will be sounded, and David and Abishai are dead. But notice what Abishai does. He does exactly what the men do in the cave, don't they not? 
Look with me in verse verse 8. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. (laughs) Abishai says, I will be merciful in this killing. I will only get him once. It'll be a mercy killing, David. I I promise I I won't get him more than once. Now imagine here for a moment. This is the very spear that has whizzed past David's head three times. David knows this spear well. He has seen it come flying at him again and again. And here his enemy lies in his hands. They could strike dead Saul in an instant and be out of camp before anyone recognizes them. Abishai will be the only witness in the murder of Saul. He will be the only one. And Abishai himself says, David, let's do this. I'll do it. Remember in the cave, the men said, David, you go kill Saul. He's the Lord is get." They learned. They said, all right, how about we do it ourselves? How about I go and do it, David? What does that sound like? And I promise when I kill him, it will be merciful. David says, no. Brothers and sisters, a recurring theme here. Do you not see it? Who gave David Who is allowing this? Who is bringing this? Well, the text makes clear, doesn't it? Abishai is no fool, neither is David. The Lord, the Lord has given your enemy into your hand this day. In other words, we're meant to understand that this trial, this temptation, is a divine testing. A divine testing. The Lord is testing David. Now, he's not tempting David to sin, but he's testing him. He's testing him to see whether or not David will be faithful to his word. We see a contrasting kingship here, do we not? A king who is so quick to murder anyone. In fact, he, he kills all the priests at Nob. King Saul. But David is unwilling to put his hand against one person. He's learned his lesson, hasn't he not, from, from the incident with Nabal? Though the opportunity has come, he trusts that this is from the Lord. God was using this to teach David to grow him in grace. Brothers and sisters, trials come from the Lord to teach us. Count it all joy, my brothers, James says. When trials come. Count it all joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of various kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Brothers and sisters, do you know what happens to those who are not in trial? They are weak. Peter says it this way, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, that it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Brothers and sisters, trials offer us the opportunity to see the Lord at work. These trials offer David 
the opportunity to see the Lord at work. Again and again, we are told that David is recognizing the Lord's hand in this and that the Lord will act. In other words, if David was not brought into these trials, he would never have the opportunity to see the Lord at work. Trials offer us a recurring opportunity to see Jesus work. To see God deliver. To see God answer prayer. If you didn't have anything to pray for, there would be no prayer of thanksgiving. Trials give us the ability to pray thanksgiving. Well, in verses 9 through 12, excuse me, we see a reassuring promise. Oh, we've seen a relentless enemy, a recurring problem, and here a reassuring promise. Notice with me in verse 9 how David responds. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? We've seen that again and again, right? David understands that he sees King Saul. He says, look, he's still king, and I will not dispose him by murdering him. I will, in verse 10, trust the promises of God. And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. For his day will come to die, or we will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. David trusts the Lord's promises. God had promised through the, through the prophet Samuel that David would be king. David in this text is believing the promise of God. He is not going to take matters into his own hands. He is not giving in to sin so that he can seek relief. Rather, he's saying, no, God will deal with this problem. I'm trusting the Lord. I'm going to give it to Jesus. I'm going to trust that the Lord will deal with this problem in his own way and for his own glory. And this is what the Lord does. That's, what, that's how 1 Samuel ends, in fact. 1 Samuel ends with Saul dead in battle. God got his man. David was learning to trust the Lord, to trust God's promises to him. Friend, you learn to swim by swimming. I know. It's genius, isn't it? You learn to ride a bike not by looking at it, not by figuring out the gears and how the gears work. You learn to ride a bike by getting on the bike and riding the bike. You learn to drive by driving. Brothers and sisters, these basic tasks we do every day, we learned by doing them. By doing them. We know that's how we have been created to learn. Right? We learn through experience. Through doing basic tasks. And brothers and sisters, you cannot learn to trust the Lord unless you are given opportunity to trust the Lord. You cannot learn to lean on His everlasting arms if life is all you doing the, doing the work. If you stay inside, away from the heat of the sun and the, the, all the 
fancy things that happen there, and I don't know all of the, those things. I'm not intelligent in that way. But doctors say that if you stay inside, away from sun, what happens? You become deficient in vitamin D. Stay away from the sun, you stay inside, you also you won't just look like a ghost, you know, right? Your bones will begin to, to, to deteriorate. You become deficient, right? Brothers and sisters, this is also true of the Christian life. If you stay out of the heat of trial, you will be weak and anemic as a Christian. You will be deficient in your ability to trust God. You know those trials that you've been through in your life? Those painful scars that you still feel today? Brothers and sisters, do you recognize those are gifts from God that taught you to trust Him so that you could in the next trial trust Him again? More than that, not not only so that you could trust, but that you, you could tell others. You'll remember what we read earlier in Psalm 54. There was this forward look about those around, I'm going to tell others about your goodness. Brothers and sisters, we must learn to trust, to taste, and see the Lord is good. We know that, that problem, like taste and see the Lord is good. In other words, what the psalmist is inviting us to do is to, to go and try it. You don't know it's good until you put it in your mouth. It may look good, it may not look good. But you don't know until you put it in your mouth and you taste it. And so it is with trial. You don't know how good God is until you are in the midst of the greatest darkness and pain and sorrow. And your friends and family have abandoned you. And you've got no one but Jesus. Then it it becomes real. Then it becomes vivid. That He is trustworthy. And He never fails on any of His promises. David in Psalm 30, 37 says it this way, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your ways to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and justice as the noonday. David was in the midst of darkness, but you know what he found in the midst of darkness? He found that if he would pursue righteousness, that it would be a light to him. A light in the midst of darkness. He goes on, the Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep his ways and he will exalt you in the inheritance to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. Or as Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Do you believe that? Do you know that to be true? Do you believe these promises that the Lord has delivered you into trial, that He would teach you to trust Him? Brothers and sisters, in the midst of troubling times, we must learn and remember That trials are from the Lord. He gives them to us so that we will learn to trust Him. And this leads us then to our second point. The second truth that we see, our second truth for troubling time in verses 13 through 25, is to trust the Lord for a greater reward. Trust the Lord for a greater reward. There's a bigger game going on. There's There's a bigger goal in mind than mere deliverance 
from our current trials. It's a great reward. Three things we see in this text. Number one, endure trials for your integrity. Verses 13 through 16. This is a theme that we've seen throughout. And that's this theme of David's integrity. Verses 13 through uh, 16, David calls out Abner. He says, hey, Abner, are you over there? Wake up, Abner. Abner was the commander of the armies of Israel. He was commander-in-chief over all the armies of Israel. And particularly these 3,000 men. Abner had one job. Keep David or keep King Saul safe. He had one job. He was kind of like the secret service. He had one task. Take a bullet for the king. But what do we find Abner doing in the text? But sleeping. Abner does not take the provisions to keep King Saul safe. And David calls him out on him. David is using this as an opportunity to persuade Saul's second in command to, to cease and desist their attacks against him. He appeals to Abner and he confronts him, confronts Abner and his failing to protect the king. But the point I think we understand here is that this was about David's integrity. You see, David was yet again, just like that corner of the robe, Here he has a spear and a jar of water. And he's offering them as evidence that he's innocent. Look, I had opportunity, just like I had in the cave, to kill the king, yet I didn't do it. David's throne was not not to be taken by power, but by the Lord. David is trusting here. He's enduring trials for his integrity. And that's true of us as well. That we must trust the Lord. That we endure for our own integrity. For our own namesake. And for the name of King Jesus. Verses 17 through 20. Saul responds and David and him interact. And we see something that we are to endure trials for our worship. You're told in this exchange here that that David has been basically told to leave town and to find a new God. David says, look, and I didn't do any of this. What, what, What have I done? He's crying out at this injustice that has been done to him. He's innocent. He's done nothing. He he's just spinning his wheels, crying. What have I done? Why are you doing this? Look what he says in verse 19 at the end there. For they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the inheritance, in the heritage, excuse me, of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. They're saying to him, David, just go find some other God. You, you don't, you're not welcome here. The pain is real and hurtful. Now, therefore, let my blood not fall to the ground or away from the presence of the Lord. In other words, David's worship was being hindered by their actions. And brothers and sisters, what I want to point out in this text is exactly what the enemy does to you. While God means your trial for good, the enemy means it for evil. All right, you just have to know that. And what the enemy is trying to do in the midst of your trial is to steal, to rob you of worship. 
It's hard. It's hard to worship God in the midst of trial. It is. It's difficult. The pain often is so great, so blinding, so big, that we neglect worship. We neglect to meditate on the goodness of God. You ever wonder, if, and just something you could do perhaps this afternoon, instead of watching football, um, you could just look up in the Psalms and see how many times David says, meditate on the Lord. Why does he do that? Because he trusts that when one would just stop and think about the Lord, what happens is that God becomes really big and our problems become really small. Because when we, all we do is think about our problems and we dwell upon them and we want to get around them and get in them and get over them and try to figure it, what we're trying to do is be God. And if you're God, you're in a lot of trouble. But when we meditate on the greatness of God, we trust and recognize, man, I'll never get a handle on this trial. I'll never get through this. I can't do this. I can't endure this. I can't see my way out of this. But now you're in a good place. Because now you're not trusting in you. Now you're not depending on you. But you're depending on the Lord. You're praising Him. Finally, we see in verses 21 through 25, endure trials for your reward. There is a reward, David says, for those who endure trials. Saul, again, we are told, repents, uh, but David doesn't trust him. Rightly so. As the text will see, Saul will yet again go after David later. Saul has honestly spiraled so far out of control, it's really quite sad. In a few weeks, we will consider 1 Samuel 28, where, where really Saul hits rock bottom. He, he, he's hanging out with witches and getting, bringing Samuel back from the dead. It's really a sad sight. But here David makes a profound theological statement about righteousness and faithfulness. And I just want to spend our last few moments on it. Look at me in verse 23. Meditate on these today. Think on these today. The, the Lord rewards every man and woman for their righteousness and faithfulness. In other words... Sin offers you a reward. Now we're foolish to think that we don't think that. Well, that's why we sin, brothers and sisters. Because it feels good. It feels right. We love it. Well, we're silly to think that, 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 that sin doesn't promise us something. That's why we go back to it again and again. Sin offers us a reward, but what David says is that faithfulness and righteousness gives a greater reward, a better reward, a lasting reward, an eternal reward. Notice how he couches this whole conversation with the word life. Saul, in verse 21, uses it first. He says this, return my son, David, for I will no more do you harm because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Now notice how David takes that and turns it around in verse 24. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, 
so may my life, David's life, be precious in the sight of the Lord. And may he deliver me out of all my tribulation, or out of all tribulation. David will not give in to evil with evil. David will not give in. He has learned his lesson from his dealings with Nabal. Vengeance is the Lord. You see that theme again and again and again. Vengeance is the Lord's. He will not give himself to evil, but give himself to doing good. Brothers and sisters, when you have been treated wrongly, when you have been the victim of injustice, do not turn to evil. Evil does not make things right, but turn to good. As we heard last week in Romans, do good to those who do evil. Win them with good. Why? Because the Lord rewards those who seek righteousness and faithfulness. This is what the Lord was looking for in a king. He, He was not looking for a king who would take matters into his own hands, but a king who would obey. A king who would be not only obedient, but a king who would be faithful. Faithful. Throughout 1 Samuel, we have seen... Uh, this idea of rewards, but I just want to highlight a couple of them because I want you to see this is a bigger story, a bigger angle going on, an arc to the story here. In verse uh, 19 of chapter 24, For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe so that the Lord rewards you with good for what you have done to me this day? That was Saul's prayer to David, that the Lord would reward him. And then towards the end of David's life, when David was about done, when the sun was setting on his life, he, he, he wrote a song. He, he was a songwriter. That's what he did for, a, for his life. And in this final song that David wrote, he says this, The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. Later on, he would say this, And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. David, looking back over his 40 years as king, the Lord rewarded me for my righteousness. David wrote another psalm. Psalm 19, and in that he says this, Moreover, by the law is your servant warned, in keeping your commandments, there is great reward. Jesus taught the same. Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount, but love your enemies and do good to them and lend back. Expect nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. There is a reward for those who obey. Brothers and sisters, we endure trials for this reward. We can't think of anyone else. I'm often drawn to Hebrews 11, and, and, and you know that passage perhaps well about this sort of a catalog of faithfulness in the Old Testament of the faithful saints. No, they weren't perfect. Yes, they had failings. 
The author of Hebrews points out Moses' faith. He says, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Oh, the fleeting pleasures of sin. Isn't that what we, we enjoy? But see, Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to what? The reward. Are you looking for a reward? This morning you might think, wow, well, Pastor, I want to be righteous. I want to be faithful. Me too. Perhaps if you've had some bad days this week, you think, man, I've been unrighteous. I've been sinful. I've been unfaithful to the Lord this week. Maybe in large ways or small ways, you've been unfaithful. And your conclusion is there's no way the Lord will ever reward me. So you're discouraged. Or perhaps you've had a good week this week. And you've kind of set up a little bit. Yeah, I've been righteous. I've been obedient. I've been good this week. It's been a good week, been a good day. The Lord's going to give me a reward. You see, the Bible tells us that, that no one is righteous. Not one. That every one of us have fallen from His glorious grace. You see, this text presents us with a big problem. And that is, while David was righteous in this case, we will find out that David isn't so righteous. In the very next chapter. David deserts. In the very next chapter, David flees to the enemy. In the very next chapter, David turns on his own people and begins to kill them. Begins to kill his fellow Israelites. What are we to do when we're not righteous? This text presents us with a great need, does it not? A need for a, another who is righteous. Another who is perfectly righteous. You ever wondered why Jesus came? Well, Paul tells us that Jesus came for a particular reason. That He was revealed. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faithfulness. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Jesus Christ came as a man, fully God and fully man. And lived a perfect life. Never disobeying. Every trial endured perfectly. Never cursed God. Never grew weary. Never gave up. He obeyed the law in every respect. Every little piece of the law. Never one thought of sin crossed his mind. The righteousness of God is revealed through Christ. For faithfulness. In other words, Jesus obeyed the law. He was righteous and He was faithful on behalf of someone else. This is what Paul will say later in chapter 3 of Romans. What he says is, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. 
Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. That word, a gift, means reward. A reward through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and justifier of all those who put their faith in Christ. Brothers and sisters, this does not mean we don't live righteously. But what it means is that you can only live righteously through the righteousness of another. It means that you need Jesus more than you realize, more than I realize. See, our sin is so great that it separates us from a holy God. That only by turning from our sin, by, by truly repenting, not like King Saul did, repent and then go back to it, repent and go back, but to say, I am done with sin and I want the righteousness of God. And by faith, believing that Christ Jesus not only lived the perfect life for me, but he died the perfect death for me. And he was raised from the dead, Paul will say in just a few verses, for our justification. Jesus was raised from the dead that we might be saved, that we might be declared righteous. And so today, salvation is not by, by your works. It's not by your own goodness. Brothers and sisters, let us trust the Lord for a greater reward that comes to us as a gift through faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we come as sinners in need of grace, and we come and just trusting your promises, believing them is true. Lord, you've demonstrated time and time again, and in the coming of Christ, there all of your promises find their yes and amen. In the midst of trial, we can trust that you are good and gracious, that you have ushered us into this trial, and that you will see us through this trial for your glory. And we have assurance this morning. We have assurance that you will hold us fast, that we are secure. And we believe this one promise this morning. That all that the Father has given to me will come to me and I shall cast none of them out. And I will bring them in. And I will bring them to your kingdom. This is our promise this morning. This is what we trust. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.